pray. Join with me in prayer. O Lord God, you have done great and mighty deeds. Uh, You have done them for the good of the undeserving, for the good of sinners, for our good. We pray that you would continue to do us good by instructing us in your word, by reminding us of what you have done and what you do for us even now, and what you have promised for us, that we might have hope and endure We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I put the hymnal down, but if you're going to be reading along with the Westminster Confession, you should probably pick that back up, unless you have another copy. Um, We'll be looking today at chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is called Of God's Covenant with Man, and that's on page 852 of the hymnal. Before I read the first paragraph, though, just to comment on the word covenant, you know, in the title, God's covenant with man, um, the Hebrew word berit is translated as covenant. Um, Other words that are suggested in the lexicon are treaty, alliance, league. Um, In short, it's a bond between people. Of course, covenant, those is an appropriate and good translation Um, A covenant, biblically speaking, is an oath that establishes a relationship between two parties and defines the nature and obligations of that relationship and binds the two together. Uh, So it's a, let me repeat that, a covenant is an oath that establishes a relationship between two parties, defines its nature and obligations, and binds them to mutual fidelity. So, for example, in the Bible and in the ancient world, and really not only in the ancient world, but, you know, you could go into the medieval world and other parts of history. It's a long-standing tradition. But in the Bible and in the ancient world, covenants were made between kings and lesser rulers, uh, their, their vassals, those who owed allegiance to their lord and were gifted with land. Um, they were made between friends. We can think of David and Jonathan uh, had a covenant between them. Uh, or between peoples, or between vassal peoples and a greater people, like the Gibeonites and the Israelites. Gibeonites, uh, using some some subtlety and deception, got the Israelites to agree to a covenant between the two. And um, they were bound by that, uh, so much so that when Saul began killing the Gibeonites, God sent judgment upon Israel for that. And you'll notice both with the covenant between David and Jonathan and the covenant between Israel and the Gibeonites, that it was for them and for their children. Uh, This is kind of a pattern for covenants of of all kinds, that um, Jonathan died and David wanted to show that same loving kindness, that covenant mercy to Jonathan's house. And so he found Mephibosheth. Um, This is something that's true with God's covenant with his people as well. And of course, another great example of covenant in Bible and history and uh, creation is between husband and wife. Um, that's, that's described as a covenant uh, as in Malachi, and God compares his covenant with his people to uh, a husband and wife, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, so with that concept in mind, let's go ahead to the first paragraph. 
The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So any covenant that God makes with man is generous, an unmerited gift. He did not have to do it. Notice the term, he, he was pleased. Uh, it's a phrase that the confession likes to use uh, because it's often emphasizing the freedom of God. That he, was not, he didn't need to create anything, and then he wasn't in need of the things that he made, and he didn't have to draw so close to mankind. We owed obedience to him regardless of what he did. And you know, is the, the pot able to make the potter, you know, obligated to him, uh, put, in, put into uh, debt unto him? Uh, does it deserve a reward from the potter? No, man naturally owes obedience to God as his creator. And as Jesus told in the parable of the unworthy servants, when they've done all their duty, they've just done but their duty. Uh, they, that was what they were supposed to do in Luke seventeen ten. So we cannot put God into our debt. Uh, he does not need us. And yet, God draws near to us. He is pleased to bind himself to man, uh, to give himself to man as man's blessedness and reward. And he does this by way of covenant. Uh, when God makes a covenant with man, he establishes a mutual bond of fellowship and loyalty with him takes them under his care, promises them eternal life and blessing. He, as we even see in the garden, walks with them in the cool of the day. Um, He uh, expresses some voluntary condescension. Now, that's a phrase that we don't use every day. And in fact, when we use the word condescension today, we typically mean something opposite. You know, today we might use, you know, he was, so-and-so was condescending, as in looking down with disdain. Well, that's not what it's referring to here. Originally, the word means quite the opposite, to stoop down from one's rights and accommodate oneself to the lowly, to stoop down, not in a disdaining way, but in, in a, a humble and loving way. Or as Noah Webster would say, a relinquishment of strict right, submission to inferiors in granting requests or performing acts which strict justice does not require. Um, and so, similar to our idea of, of grace, although usually the way we use grace is not only to those who did not deserve this, but who deserved quite the opposite, you know, redemptive grace. But any covenant is, is generous, an unmerited gift. Let's look at the second paragraph. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. I think we mentioned after church last week that the confession in its previous chapter hadn't really brought out the unique headship of Adam in talking about the fall, although the catechisms do bring that in. But in the confession, it does appear here in its discussion of the covenant, that, that God had made the covenant of works with man uh, to Adam and in him, his posterity. It was, what do we usually call this first covenant? Anyone? The covenant of works, right. Or it was a covenant 
of works. That's describing kind of what makes it distinct or from the cov- covenant of grace in that it was uh, on the condition of perfect and personal obedience. Um, the catechisms add perpetual obedience as well. Uh, one strike and you're out. The promise of this covenant was life, even as the, uh, the curse for breaking it was death. And the day that you shall eat of it, that forbidden fruit, you shall surely die. Uh, but the promise of life was symbolized by the tree of life that was also there in the garden. The covenant was made with Adam and in him to his posterity. We find this in Romans 5, where Adam is compared to another covenantal head, uh, Christ, the last Adam. And even as we fell in the first Adam by his disobedience and, and received guilt and death, so in the last Adam by his righteousness and his sacrifice that we are made righteous and we are given life. Now, even though it was conditioned on works, it was still a very generous covenant. Man was made righteous. Uh, He was not made neutral. He wasn't made sinful. He was righteous. That accorded with his nature. And he was given uh, abundance, uh, fruits, and uh, a a garden that was already prepared for him. And while the condition was observed, Adam and Eve enjoyed communion with God and abundant blessings with dominion and fruitfulness. But we know that's not how things continued, right? So let's look at the next paragraph, chapter, uh, paragraph three. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So man broke the covenant of works. And we looked at that last time, right? Sin of eating the forbidden fruit um, because he had done such thing uh, that he receive the curse, subject to death. But, again, God didn't need to do anything, but he was pleased to make a second covenant, what we call the covenant of grace. And here, especially in the the sense of redemptive grace, um, a free gift to those who deserved quite the opposite. God made his covenant with sinners on on this basis of grace all the way back in Genesis 3. In fact, we might even say uh, that there's an eternal aspect to this where he you know, elected uh, unto life those whom he would save in Christ. But in history, it began in Genesis uh, 3, where he promised to deliver his people from the serpent. Mankind had aligned themselves with the serpent in rebellion against God. Their enmity was with God, but he says, I will create em- create." enmity between you and the serpent. I'll, I'll take you out of his realm and, and bring you to my side and then defeat the serpent. Not only will you be at war with the serpent, but, you, but the serpent will lose. And how? Through the seed of the woman, through the promised offspring, through uh, Jesus Christ. And so in the second covenant, which is progressively revealed then in the rest of scripture, um, 
God freely offers to sinners, that's part of the uniqueness here, uh, life and salvation. And he does so through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator of this covenant. He is the redeemer. Uh, He is the head um, in this second covenant. And so we are blessed by our connection with him. In fact, the larger catechism will say that this, the covenant of grace was made with Christ and uh, in him, the elect, as his seed. You know, it's, it's by our connection with Christ that we receive all the benefits of the covenant of grace. Um, and we find this, of course, in, in Scripture. Jesus talks about the, the blood of the covenant being his blood uh, that is shed for the remission of sins, something we say every week. Um, that life is in him. And this requires of sinners faith in Christ that they may be saved. Uh, the larger catechism adds that this is the condition to interest them in him. Uh, interest not like, oh, that's interesting, but interest like having a share in. You know, like if you have a share in a stock, you know, if it goes up, then your fortune goes up. Well, you are interested in Christ, that you have a part in Christ. Uh, that his blessings are yours, and you know your sins were laid on him, and his righteousness is laid on you. Um, faith is that particular condition, unique in this respect, that it joins us to Christ. And so one must have faith in Christ to be saved. That is the condition of this covenant. Uh, if you ever wonder, like, what's a really simple definition of a covenant of grace? You could draw quite a few from Scripture, different ways it could be summarized. John 3.16 is a great one. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, this is God's promise. This is the condition. This is, you know, what's, what you avoid. This is the motive, his love. Now, repentance may be said to be a condition, but not in the same way. So it's just in the sense that no one will be saved without repenting. Uh, but not that the repentance is the grounds for one's forgiveness or gives you a share in Christ. And I like to say that obedience is better described as an obligation of the covenant rather than a a condition of the covenant. Um, But we could quibble on that. Certainly the covenant obligates you then to love the God who has saved you and to walk in his ways. And then the promises to give, uh, God then promises to give unto the elect his spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. You know, so he holds forth this covenant of grace to all people, urging them to believe that they might have part in it. And that is freely offered to the world, to all. Uh, But he also then makes sure that that some will believe, you know, because man in his sin, uh, as we saw in the last chapter, wouldn't budge. Um, God also promises to give to the elect his spirit to make them willing and able uh, to believe. And we find this not only in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, where God will send his spirit to give a new heart to his people, that they might walk in his ways. Um, But also in John, which is not surprising because John draws on Ezekiel a lot, but John 6, 44 through 45, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. 
So no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And those that the Father draws will come to me. Those who come to me, I will raise up on the last day. And so it is not like he holds this covenant out and maybe it will succeed, maybe it won't. But he also promises uh, to give unto the elect his spirit. Any questions so far about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace? Um, Let's go to paragraph four then. The covenant of grace, this covenant of grace, is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ the testator and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Now, in the New Testament, it's not so much that a different word is used, it's more that the same word can sometimes, depending on the context, be translated covenant or testament. Uh, we're dealing with multiple languages here. You know, covenant is, um, and, and testament come from different Latin words into English, and we have a Greek word, uh, diatheke, which is a Greek word that's translating the Old Testament word, berit, which uh, is, is covenant. But the Greek word can also be translated testament, like a last will and testament. Um, this, the similarity of covenant and testament is why we call the Bible the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's another way to say Old Covenant and New Covenant. Um, but the important point here is that uh, sometimes, and really especially in Hebrews 9, I could quibble at the word frequently. How frequently is this concept in mind? But at least in Hebrews 9, the concept of a testament is used to describe the covenant of grace. Um, And certainly the idea of a granting of an inheritance is um, found throughout covenant theology. As we saw, you know, the giving of of a land to to a vassal or something like that uh, is is, uh, already part of... uh, uh, an ancient covenant. Even a marriage covenant has to do with, with a share in property and the like, uh, among many other things. But in Hebrews 9, it talks about that the death of the testator uh, is required for the, the last will and testament to be enforced so that you might receive the inheritance. And in that way, um, when Christ died, it guaranteed to you your everlasting inheritance. Um, and uh, as a consequence, we receive that freely just as one might freely receive something that was willed to you by someone uh, who died. Uh, And so his death bequeaths to us an everlasting inheritance, or we should say the covenant bequeaths to us an everlasting inheritance through the death of Christ. Now the next and the last two paragraphs here refer to how has this covenant been administered? Uh, it's it's a, something that's administered in history and uh, has been administered differently in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And notice it has been administered in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That Old Testament and New Testament are different administrations of the one covenant of grace. When we speak of the Old Covenant, we're not talking about the covenant of works. That was a previous, the first covenant. But the Old Covenant refers to the administration before Christ under types and promises and and sacrifices and circumcision and things of that sort. And the New Covenant refers to the the final and permanent administration when Christ, the substance of the covenant, has been exhibited, who has come and has instituted new ordinances that um, more 
um, powerfully and clearly uh, proclaim this to all nations. Now, I've kind of jumped through all of this already. Let's, let's go paragraph by paragraph, like these last two. Number five. This covenant, so this covenant of grace, was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, and were, for that time, sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. So ever since the fall, man has been a sinner. And if God made a covenant, a new covenant of works with, with a sinner, guess how long it would last? About two seconds, right? Maybe one. Maybe not even that long. Man, man, his original sin alone would, you know, would, would cause him to fall short of the perfection of the covenant of works. But no, God has made it. That covenant of works continues as what condemns man. Uh, it's kind of the, the backdrop, the dark backdrop to the rest of, of history. But uh, when God has made a covenant with his people, it's been on the basis of grace through Christ. And in the Old Covenant administration, he brought people to faith in Christ through, as it says, promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, Passover lamb. And we find it increase, revealed in increasing detail. Um, sometimes we'll talk about the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, but really it's the same covenant being renewed with every generation. Uh, you have it uh, made with Abraham, but then you also have it renewed with Isaac, and then you have it renewed with Jacob, and then you have it renewed with his 12 sons, and then with all their descendants at Sinai, and then again on the plains of Moab, and then again in the land, and at the end of J- Joshua's life, and you know, again and again, the same covenant is being renewed and sometimes expanded. But it's helpful to think of kind of the major epochs of, um, uh, of this covenant as it becomes more clear and more ordinances established. First, there's Adam and Eve, in chapter 3 of Genesis, which I already described. Um, The first actual reference to the word covenant is in God's covenant with Noah uh, to deliver him from judgment uh, and to then cease from that judgment um, afterwards as he smells the savor of the sacrifices um, that God will make his covenant with Noah and his household and all the animals on the ark. And then there's a covenant with Abraham, which we've been talking about in the sermons, right? He calls Abraham by his grace out of idolatry uh, to give him an inheritance. And does, can anyone remember, I think I mentioned them a couple times, uh, four promises to summarize all the promises made to Abraham? I, I've summarized them as four, but I don't know if anyone has caught on to that, if I've repeated them enough. Yeah, you got two of them, right? Offspring and land. Those are kind of the two especially emphasized in chapter 15. Um, yeah, so through you, the, all the nations will be blessed. So this worldwide blessing through his offspring, which is Christ preeminently in that context. And then blessing. You know that, that God will bless Abraham. You know, have fellowship with Abraham. Um, so there's the blessing... Uh, of Abraham, just like God had blessed Adam and Eve at the beginning, so that's renewed now by grace. I will bless you. 
uh, there is the promise of offspring, and that's kind of multifaceted, that he'll be a god to his offspring, and he will have abundant offspring, and he will have the offspring through whom all the nations will be blessed. So there's this worldwide uh, blessing through Abraham's offspring, and then also the land, the inheritance, initially the land of Canaan, but of course that's uh, expanded in our understanding in the New Covenant, and even in the Old. Um, the, the patriarchs realized that God wouldn't abandon them at death, uh, that they looked to a city to come. Um, so the covenant with Abraham, chapters 12, 15, 17, 22. And, and then this is also expanded more with Moses and Israel. Uh, first in Exodus 19 through 24, and then later really the whole book of Deuteronomy, it's uh, covenant renewal on the plains of Moab. And we find great continuity with the covenant with Abraham. He's doing this in fulfillment of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, We find the theme of redemption emphasized as he brings them out of bondage uh, through the blood of the Lamb and through his mighty deeds and bringing them through the Red Sea to himself. We find the law revealed in much greater detail and and precision, and also a greater expansion of the ceremonies and uh, priestly office and sacrifices and uh, ritual uh, cleansing to teach the people as God sets up the tabernacle in their midst to emphasize his moving in with his people. You know, again, thinking of the marriage covenant analogy here. Um, Lots of types and shadows pointing to Christ to come. Um, even though there's an emphasis on law, what does the law begin with? What does the Ten Commandments begin with? I am the Lord your God, or thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he is the Lord, he is our God, he is our Redeemer. And so it is on that basis of that grace that they go on to, you know, these are the obligations, this is how we want to live together. Um, The Ten Commandments are kind of a summary of the covenant. They're referred to as God's covenant. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is called the Ark of the Covenant because the covenant's in the Ark. You know, the tablets of the covenant are stored in it, and that symbolizes God's presence by means of his word with his people. And then this is further expanded in the time of David. God makes a covenant with David, really not just for David's sake, but for the people, that he would be a shepherd for his people Israel, and that through David and his offspring, the the earlier promises would be fulfilled. That uh, Israel, that God's people, would be blessed through this kingly mediator. So not only through the priest, but also through a king, and then a king from the line of David. The people would be blessed, the promises fulfilled. As Psalm 72 says, you know, let all, all the people be blessed in you, in, in the son of David. Uh, that's that earlier promise is, is uh, fulfilled through David. And the prophets, even after the king, the monarchy falls, the prophets maintain this hope that this heir of David will come and fulfill all of these promises of the covenant. So in this way, the elect came to believe in the promised Christ, by whom they had full forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation. You know, they didn't just kind of like hope for it, but they all still went to hell until Jesus redeemed them out of it when he died. No, they, they, were, they had forgiveness, they, had, they were regenerated, Uh, They had salvation in the Old Testament in the same way that we do, just with a different uh, administration, different ceremonies, different uh, ordinances. Then, let me read uh, the lastly, the last paragraph, number six. 
Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, Yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are therefore not two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So with the coming of Christ, this covenant of grace reaches its final and permanent form, known as the New Covenant, as Jesus describes it, in Luke 22, Jesus came to fulfill God's holy covenant, uh, that oath that to Abraham. Um, Luke 1 speaks of it that way, and he came to fulfill the covenant of grace by his death and resurrection. He is the substance of the types and shadows, as Colossians 2 says, and he makes the former ceremonies obsolete. They were imposed until the time of reformation, as Hebrew says. And so he fulfills them, and he institutes simpler and clearer ordinances that point to his work, uh, namely uh, preaching of the gospel um, and to all nations, and the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, We find this, for example, in the Great Commission. Uh, He pours out the Holy Spirit in greater abundance so that this covenant is held forth in greater fullness and efficacy to all nations. Galatians speaks, as it were, of the church coming to the age of maturity, uh, coming of age, and the church ought to be more mature, uh, have less the restrictions that you might put on child where you really hem them up and and you give them a little more uh, freedom as they grow older and come into their inheritance. But uh, as an analogy for the covenant Uh, the new covenant, and the church under it. It's for Jew and Gentile on equal terms. It goes out to all nations. Believing Gentiles are grafted on to the same people of God, even as unbelieving Jews are are trimmed off um, until they uh, believe. It's the same people, though, Jew and Gentile, children of Abraham, along with uh, the believing Jews who are already there. Uh, And so Galatians 3 and Romans 11 uh, describe that. So there's, there's one covenant of grace, and uh, same in substance, but under various dispensations. Of course, then you're like, wait a minute, are we dispensational then? Well, we, we talk of dispensations, well, we use the word, but no, dispensationalism would refer to uh, a different, um, where, where different dispensations would have different ways of salvation or, or different um, uh, substances almost. So uh, that would not be what it's referring to. But different administrations, dispensation, administration being used um, to refer to the same thing. All right. Uh, <coughs> any questions before we wrap up here? Covenant theology, it's obviously a, a big topic and we could say a lot more about it. But... Next week, we'll have an even bigger chapter on Christ the Mediator, and we might finally break up a chapter into two parts here as we come to Christ the Mediator. Uh, There'll be a lot to cover there, because he is, you know, the next question then is, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Uh, Who is the redeemer of God's elect? And we'll describe him, the substance of the covenant, uh, in the following chapter.
Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your covenant, your oath that you have sworn by yourself uh, so that we know your unchangeable purpose to save sinners through faith in Jesus Christ, that we might rest wholly and fully upon you, uh, trusting in you from day to day, that you will be our, our Father, our Lord, our Protector, through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. We pray that you would fulfill these promises, even as you have spoken, that you would bless all the nations through Jesus Christ, uh, that you would uh, bring the lost into the blessing of this covenant. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.